Welcome to the SWIB podcast, where members of the Wisconsin Retirement System can turn for timely information on the investments that help fund the state's pension system. I'm Chris Preisler, Communications Specialist for the State of Wisconsin Investment Board, or SWIB. And I'm Dusty Weiss, producer of the podcast. The U.S. economy has shown remarkable resiliency, despite many industry experts saying a recession is inevitable. The same cannot be said about the housing market. Home prices continue to climb, interest rates are near record highs, and home inventory is not matching home buyer demand. Today, we'll talk with Leo Kropovyansky, Senior Portfolio Manager on the research team in SWIB's Asset and Risk Allocation Group, to get his thoughts on just how long the volatility facing the U.S. housing market might continue, when home prices could level off or even drop, and what impact the Federal Reserve's efforts to tame inflation have had. We'll then talk to Mike Shearer, SWIB's Head of Fixed Income Strategies, to get some insight on what all this means for SWIB's mortgage-backed securities portfolio. The SWIB podcast is a regular opportunity for you to learn more about the people and funds that comprise the Wisconsin retirement system. Please make sure to subscribe in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. Share this episode with your fellow WRS members and leave a review on Apple Podcasts so it's easier for other members to find this show. Today, we welcome back Mike Shearer, SWIB's Head of Fixed Income Strategies. Mike joined SWIB in 2015. Before coming to SWIB, he spent time on both coasts. Mike grew up in Los Angeles and earned his bachelor's degree and PhD in applied mathematics from UCLA and became head of mortgages at Barclays Global Investors in San Francisco. He left the West Coast to become managing director and head of structured products and quantitative strategies at Atlantic Asset Management in Stanford, Connecticut. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. And joining Mike today is Leo Kropovyansky, Senior Portfolio Manager on the research team in SWIB's Asset and Risk Allocation Group. Leo joined SWIB in 2019. Before coming to SWIB, he was Managing Director of Economic Research at Element Capital Management. Prior to that, Leo spent 22 years as an economist at WCG Management, Putnam Investments, Decision Economics, Lehman Brothers, and with the Bank of Portugal. Earlier in his career, Leo served as a research assistant with the U.S. Federal Reserve Board. Leo holds a bachelor's degree in economics from Dartmouth College and a Ph.D. in economics from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Leo, welcome back to the SWIB podcast. Thanks for having me and happy to be here. Of course, one of our favorite things about the podcast is we get to talk to people with such incredible backgrounds and such great depth of knowledge. And so, Leo, we want to start with you here on this one. We've talked on this podcast a lot the past year about the Federal Reserve's efforts to cool consumer spending and tame that pesky inflation. They've used interest rate hikes totaling so far five and a quarter percentage points. The pace of tightening is the fastest that we've seen since the 1980s, and the Federal Reserve has paused its hikes recently, but interest rates are still well above what the Fed considers its 2.5% neutral rate, and inflation is still sticky. So to set the stage for our discussion today, can you talk a little bit in general about what you're seeing in the economy? Sure. So despite the large and rapid Fed rate hikes, the economy has been pretty resilient. Household balance sheets are in much better shape than in 2008 when they were saddled with too much unaffordable mortgage debt. Household holdings of liquid assets are still high due to still unspent government pandemic stimulus and depressed household spending on discretionary services during 2020 to 2022. Households are simply less sensitive to interest rate increases than they were in 2008. 
The labor market's also been strong, although it's showing signs of slowing in the last few months. We've had somewhat slower job growth and a modest rise in the unemployment. As you know, inflation is still above the Fed's target of 2%, although it's been behaving somewhat better over the course of this year. The Fed prefers to look at a measure of core PCE inflation that was running at about 3.7% year-on-year in September. That's down from a peak of about 5.5% in the spring of 2022, so still high but moving in the right direction. If we look at some higher-frequency measures, six-month annualized core inflation, that was at about 2.8% in September three-month annualized at two and a half percent. So these are starting to get sort of within shouting distance of that 2% target. And I'd call it a fairly favorable inflation development over the last, let's say, six months. These recent better behaved inflation figures, I think, make it more plausible that inflation can be brought back to the 2% target without a recession or another way of putting that without an outright contraction in real GDP. I will say that given the degree of Fed tightening so far, it still seems likely that we're going to see at least a growth recession in 2024. And by that, I mean a slowing of GDP growth to something like a 1% rate. That's below the 1.8% rate that the Fed sees as sort of a natural or potential rate of growth. And it's certainly a slowdown to below the kind of 2.9% growth that we've seen over the last year. So I'd say the odds of outright recession probably have diminished. Slow growth or a growth recession still, in my view, looks fairly likely. It's interesting that despite the Fed's efforts, the U.S. economy, as you just said, has really shown remarkable resiliency. But that really can't be said about the housing market. For the first time in more than two decades, 30-year fixed mortgage rates continue to hold or hover around 8%. Although we did see the biggest one-week drop in over a year recently, home prices are high and inventory is low. It seems like the dream of owning a home is inching further out of reach for many Americans. Yeah, I suppose we could say that the housing market has been resilient in the sense that house prices fell only modestly in the second half of 2022 and have since resumed rising. So this is actually good news for homeowners, but as you say, it's pretty bad news for aspiring first-time home buyers who are facing a real double whammy of high home prices as well as high mortgage rates. While rents have also risen over the last few years, renting is currently a lot more attractive than buying a first home. I'd say the housing market is also not great for so-called upgraders. These are households that have some equity, but not 100% equity in their homes and are looking for bigger homes. Now, we can certainly say the housing market is weak in the sense that sales of existing homes have fallen very sharply to below pre-pandemic rates and on par with the rates in the very, very weak market that we saw in 2008 to 2011. As backdrop, even before the pandemic, even before the recent big rise in mortgage rates, the U.S. had a serious undersupply of homes. 
since the crisis of the late 2000s, home builders have been cautious and banks have been cautious in lending to home builders. An average of about 1.2 million households have been formed each year since 2008, while only about 1 million homes have been built each year net of demolitions. So that's a cumulative shortfall of as many as 3 million homes. And that's gotten us to a supply-demand backdrop that is pretty tight. I think given this tight supply-demand picture, it's maybe not surprising that the home prices have held up pretty well. And this is despite both first home buyers and upgraders kind of leaving the market due to the decreased affordability. So existing home sales are down sharply over the last couple of years. According to the National Association of Realtors, the inventory of existing homes for sale is also very low at around a million units, a 40-year low, and down almost 40% from pre-pandemic levels. If you're a current homeowner that financed a mortgage when rates were low, you might only be paying 3% or 4% interest. If you sell your home now, you'd have a much higher interest rate of 75 to 8% to factor into your monthly payments on a replacement home. To what extent is mortgage lock-in constraining listings of existing homes? So I'd say that lock-in effects, mortgage lock-in effects and housing markets are without a doubt in play to some extent, but it may be hard to measure. But I'd point out that low inventories of existing homes for sale have been with us since early 2021 before the sharp increase in mortgage rates that began in early 2022. Existing home listings for sale have kind of been stuck in about a 1 million range for almost three years now, and they kind of haven't moved with mortgage rates. They were about 1 million in January of 2021 when 30-year mortgage rates were two and three quarter percent. And they're about a million now with mortgage rates much higher at seven and three quarters percent. There may be lock-in effects at work. They might be overstated to a degree. I'd say the overall backdrop remains one of too few homes relative to households. I think that's been true for quite a while and it's likely to remain true for some time. And it may be regardless of what mortgage rates are. I'd personally be skeptical that lower mortgage rates will necessarily lead to lower home prices. And there's many potential first home buyers and upgraders that are currently on the sidelines. When mortgage rates decline, which they will eventually, there will be a wave of buyers coming into the market. Some supply of existing homes will no doubt be unlocked by the lower mortgage rates to meet the wave of pent-up demand, but I think the final effect on prices is ambiguous. Prices could go up somewhat, they could go down somewhat, they could go sideways. My hunch would be sideways or up when we do finally see that decline in mortgage rates. And is that the same story for new home sales? Are we seeing low demand for new builds like we are seeing with existing home sales? New home sales do present a bit of a different picture. So sales of new homes are down from the very hot rates that we saw in 2020 and 2021, but they are on par with rates pre-pandemic. And new home sales have been rising, have been improving over the past year. And this is in a pretty marked contrast with existing home sales, which have been following continuously for a couple of years. 
and are back to their levels of 2008 to 2011. So it's interesting to note that new home sales are doing relatively better than existing, but it's important to keep in mind that the existing home market is much larger. So over the course of this year, about five existing homes were sold for each new home sold. New homes are also atypical in having a higher median price than existing homes, which means the new home market is a market for relatively well-off buyers. So, Leo, it seems like every month we've seen these home prices reach new record highs. And I'm speaking here personally as an aspiring, I believe you called us, upgraders, someone who owns a house. But uh, those 1,800 square feet aren't cutting it with three kids in the house now. It's surprising to me, given the higher interest rates. So what needs to happen to bring housing prices down? So we should note that home prices did decline in the second half of 2022. The Case-Shiller Index and a broader index from the American Enterprise Institute had house prices falling at low single-digit rates. I'd say that correction was due partly to higher interest rates and partly to normalizing what had been unusually strong second home demand related to the pandemic. But, you know, we have to say prices have resumed rising this year to new highs on a number of house price measures. I think in a normal setup, higher mortgage rates would normally discourage demand enough to bring house prices down. But the simple fact is that there aren't enough homes, you know, supply is very low and that's supporting prices despite higher mortgage rates. And in fact, there is a channel in which higher interest rates have actually helped to constrain the supply of homes. We have to remember that home builders depend heavily on borrowed funds to buy land, to buy materials. So the higher interest rates have actually brought housing starts to about 4% below their pre-pandemic level and to a very sizable 20% or more below their spring 2022 high. Now, I do think that lower borrowing rates for home builders, when the Fed does get around to cutting rates, those lower borrowing rates for home builders could over time help constrain home prices by bringing more supply to the market. But we need to keep in mind there are other more long-lasting factors at play that are going to work to constrain supply relative to demand. And that is, again, just a high degree of caution by both banks and home builders. This remains a kind of a hangover from the global financial crisis of 08-09. And I think that very importantly, a big part of why the United States isn't building enough houses are simply local zoning and permitting regulations. They have a pretty strong, not in my backyard flavor. They kind of prevent building in a lot of places. They prevent high density building in a lot of places. We certainly hear about that in the news from time to time. So where do home prices stand now? Are we seeing some volatility there? And how long can these prices keep going up? How high can they go? Is this setting us up for a housing bubble that's eventually going to burst? So I'd say home price gains have been pretty steady this year. Although some indices suggest a slowing of price appreciation in the last couple of months. Now, despite home prices being high relative to both incomes and rents, in my view, it's hard to say we have a bubble given that these prices are underpinned by what are 
pretty strong supply and demand fundamentals. I think there's still scenarios where house prices fall at least modestly in 2024. The U.S. economy has avoided recession so far. But as we've mentioned, there's been enough Fed tightening to cause what we could call a growth recession, a slowing of growth to a rate like 1%. This would lead to some rise in the unemployment rate from what's currently a very low 3.9%. It would lead to some slowing in household income growth. And on the margin, some homeowners, particularly recent buyers, could run into trouble servicing mortgage debt and become sellers. And again, that could, you know, galvanize at least a modest house price decline. So this problem of low inventory and high demand that's driving costs up is not limited to just a few markets, right? The American Enterprise Institute's Home Price Appreciation Index shows that home prices have increased in a majority of the 50 largest metro areas. So this is something we're seeing happening across the country, isn't it? Yeah, prices have definitely been rising over the course of this year in a majority of cities, but all real estate is local. It's been interesting to see only modest price increases this year and even declines in some of the Sunbelt and Mountain State cities that were hot over the course of 2020 and 2021. Meanwhile, price appreciation has been strong around cities that entered 2023 at relatively affordable levels. And many of these more affordable cities are in the Midwest. As an example, Milwaukee has appreciated 10.4% year on year. While if we look at Austin, Texas, the prime pandemic relocation destination Prices are actually down about 8.8% year on year. Wow. So there is a bit of contrast across some of the metros. Yeah, that's really interesting that those places that were so hot have uh, maybe cooled off just a little bit. And I always say Midwest is best. So, (laughs) But the Federal Reserve will meet again next month and they'll have to make a decision to continue to hold interest rates or raise them one more time this year. One thing that we're now seeing is that regardless of the Fed's decision in December, we may be in for a higher for longer environment, meaning that could be some time before we see those interest rates come back down. I think it's worth reiterating the current situation is really pretty different from 2008 and 2009. That crisis was preceded by a period of home overbuilding relative to household formation. Household balance sheets became overextended due to lax lending standards that allowed buyers to take on more debt than they could ultimately afford. The good news is that this time around, household balance sheets are in relatively better shape and there's been housing underbuild rather than overbuild over the last 15 years. Well, it's certainly a lot of interesting background and information on the housing market. And although SWIB does not invest in single-family resident homes, SWIB does have a mortgage-backed securities portfolio. We're going to turn now to Mike Shearer to find out more about what impact the current housing market has on the portfolio. But before we dive into that discussion, Mike, for those listeners who may not know and have not listened to your first appearance on the podcast, which was episode 12, by the way, can you explain what mortgage-backed securities are? Sure. Mortgage-backed securities, which are also called MBS, are fixed income investments similar to corporate bonds. They're made up of bundles of home loans bought from the banks that issued them. 
investors in MBS take a piece of a lot of different mortgages and in return receive periodic payments similar to bond coupon payments. The payments contain both principal and interest as people pay down their mortgages. Investing in an MBS is more diversified than buying individual loans because an MBS can contain up to thousands of mortgages. When you hold an MBS, you have very little exposure to individual borrowers. We focus primarily on what's called agency MBS. Those are bonds that are backed either implicitly or explicitly by government agencies. Those agencies are Ginnie Mae, Fannie Mae, and Freddie Mac that everybody's heard of. As an aside, agency MBS did considerably better in the great financial crisis than non-agency or private label MBS. At their worst, they underperformed treasuries by about 4% and recovered, while non-agency MBS lost around 40% of their value and an awful lot of those bonds defaulted. So SWIB's MBS portfolio is fairly new, having been launched in 2020. How does the portfolio fit into SWIB's overall investment strategy for the Wisconsin Retirement System Trust Funds? Internal investment in MBS provides another opportunity for SWIB to diversify its portfolio. That diversification helps SWIB maximize returns, reduce risk, and in the case of MBS, which is internally managed to save costs as internal management is less expensive than external managers. Investing in MBS and other structured product sectors allow us to take advantage of another source of excess return at alpha. Also, the depth and liquidity of the agency MBS market and the range of investment opportunities in the sector make it a very compelling part of the overall market. So, Mike, given the current housing environment, what kind of challenges are you and your team seeing when it comes to managing the MBS portfolio? For agency MBS, there are really two challenges right now. The first is the market volatility that we've already discussed a bit, to which MBS is quite sensitive, much more than, say, investment-grade credit bonds. Higher volatility makes it more difficult and costly for mortgage lenders to hedge their exposure during rate lock periods of a loan, and this causes mortgage rates to rise. The cost of that hedging is wrapped into the interest rates that borrowers pay. It also makes it more expensive for MBS investors to hedge, which also widens out spreads on the market side of the equation. The second challenge, which is much more unique to the period we're in and is a little harder to quantify, is that the Fed has stopped buying MBS. The Fed bought MBS during the GFC and really continued to buy it off and on and then really accelerated during the pandemic. They've just in the last couple of years stopped buying MBS. That's probably good for the economy eventually, but for the time being, that's creating essentially a supply glut, even with the low-level home sales we've talked about. So in the housing market, we don't have enough supply, but at MBS, without the Fed as a buyer, relative to the way things were before, we have an excess of supply. Most borrowers don't want to refinance or move right now, given that they will pay a possibly substantially higher rate on their new mortgage, but some mortgages are being written. Even at this greatly reduced volume, there just aren't enough MBS buyers in the market to keep spreads from reaching wider levels than we've seen in quite some time. So are credit fundamentals likely to drive significant performance dispersion across the MBS market? That's a good question. The answer is different for agency and non-agency MBS. For agency MBS, remember that Ginny, Fannie, and Freddie are either explicitly or implicitly guaranteeing principal payments. If a loan in an agency MBS defaults, the investor receives a payment identical to the payment that they'd receive if the loan paid off. 
The way this normally works, a borrower with an above market interest rate refinances into a lower rate. Then the investor in the original loan gets back the principal and interest due then, but the above market interest payments the investor may have been looking forward to are gone. What's more likely to happen now, on the other hand, is if a borrower moves for a job change, for example, or defaults, the investor gets principal on a loan with a below market interest rate. Remember, a lot of borrowers are paying 3 or 4% and can invest those proceeds in a higher paying MBS. For non-agency MBS, there are no guarantees, so defaults are never good. Investors in non-agency MBS need to have a well-thought-out view of how different types of consumers will be affected by rising interest rates. So far, this isn't much of an issue. The consumer is still showing strength and will probably continue to as long as the job market is strong, and as a result, credit performance has been good and will remain good in the near term at least. But we're watching this very carefully as a downturn in the economy will absolutely affect the MBS market, but different pockets of the market will feel better or worse. I'm viewing the housing market and MBS performance in both agency and non-agency space like this. The market is sitting at an equilibrium right now with a number of elements all more or less balanced. Most homeowners are experiencing some degree of lock-in, as Leo discussed, which again is where moving or refinancing are difficult because current interest rates are so much higher than the rates that the borrower already has. This has had a big effect on inventory and existing home sales, which are always a much bigger driver than new home sales. But it's okay that borrowers are less willing or able to sell because the job market is right in something like a Goldilocks zone where it's not weak and people aren't so worried about losing their jobs, but not so hot that people are more likely than usual to job hop. As long as these conditions continue to pull with essentially equal force, we're okay. And following what Leo said about a relatively soft landing, this equilibrium isn't necessarily going to end badly. It could simply fade away. We aren't putting our investment eggs in that basket, however, and are prepared for different paths, but we have a reason for optimism. One reason we're optimistic is we've seen no evidence that we're in a bubble right now. As Leo said, consumers aren't overextended with mortgage debt. And a lot of the borrowers that are locked in are locked in into a fair amount of home equity. It's hard to overstate how different this is from 2006 and 2007 when home prices peaked and started dropping and there were immediately a ton of underwater mortgages with ballooning mortgage payments. Both lenders and borrowers and regulators, for that matter, learned a lot about speculating with your first mortgage in 2008. And that has helped put the market in a much better position today than it was in then. Mike, as we just discussed with Leo, we continue to experience a great deal of economic volatility. Are higher quality properties better insulated against elevated delinquencies amidst economic stress and a looming recession? If you mean higher quality, like more expensive homes, the answer is generally no. At the moment, very high price homes are still turning over because people buying them don't necessarily need financing, but volumes are down there as well. If rates stay generally where they are and volatility remains high as well, eventually all price levels will be in the same shape. And if we get a recession, higher price homes generally drop more in those conditions than lower priced homes. So just a couple of weeks ago, in a letter to Fed Chair Jerome Powell, the Mortgage Bankers Association, the National Association of Realtors, and the National Association of Home Builders all urged the Fed to state that it's not considering further rate hikes and that it would hold off on selling any more mortgage-backed securities until the housing finance market stabilizes. What impact would this have on SWIB's portfolio, Mike? 
boy, talk about talking your own book. The letter highlights a couple of points I've already spoken about. First is the volatility in rates has raised the spread on mortgage rates. So borrowers are getting hit twice. First from the increase in the yield of the 10-year treasury, which is the benchmark for mortgage rates. It's really the pricing anchor for mortgage rates. Then the second from the yield spread between that 10-year treasury rate and then the mortgage rate, which is at about 2.4% currently. And that's about 1% higher than it was between 2012 and 2020. That time period, however, was characterized by a very active and involved Fed that was keeping rates low and intentionally or not created a very low volatility environment. In a healthy market, that spread should be something like 1.5%. So what I'm saying is that mortgage rates are close to a percentage point higher than what you might expect given where the 10-year treasury is right now. We can expect that spread to come in if and when market volatility drops. So even if the 10-year treasury stays at 4.6%, mortgage rates could drop to just over 7% or to about 6.1% on average. Not great compared to pandemic rates, but definitely in line with history. And in fact, a little bit low compared to history. The second part of the letter asked the Fed to commit to not selling MBS that they've bought since the great financial crisis and with a huge amount added during the pandemic. The Fed has kept its options open on this one, but market consensus is that they will allow their MBS portfolio to run off organically through principal paydowns. Honestly, I thought this was an odd point to bring up because nobody in the markets talked about the Fed selling mortgages for a couple of years now. But as long as they got the typewriter out of the closet, they might as well list everything. So Mike, given all this discussion and volatility and talk of rising home prices and interest rates, SWIB's mortgage-backed securities portfolio still plays an important part in the overall investment strategy for the WRS, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Ultimately, MBS is an important diversifier for the core trust fund. On behalf of the system's participants, we are long-term investors across good environments and bad. We employ strong risk management practices and try to bring as much value as possible to the beneficiaries. Leo and Mike, thanks for taking some time to talk with us about the housing market and the work you and your teams are doing at SWIB. It was a great discussion. Thank you again for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having us. Yep. Thanks so much. Enjoyed it. And thank you to all our listeners for checking out this episode of the SWIB podcast. The SWIB podcast is brought to you by the State of Wisconsin Investment Board with editing by Matt Covarrubias and produced by PodCamp Media. Branded podcast production for businesses, podcampmedia.com. Thanks again for listening. I'm Chris Preisler. And I'm Dusty Weiss.